All right, gentlemen, the second character trait we want to discuss this morning, which is foundational to us learning to man up, and it should be right on the top of your handout sheet there, is the word convictions. Uh, And I think a major component to us building a stable and an inspired course as men, even as we talked about last time, commitment, another thing that's important to build a stable, inspired course as a man is this area of developing the character trait of being a man of conviction. A man who has convictions, and convictions are basically firmly held beliefs regarding your values, that is, what you believe to be right, as well as what you believe to be wrong. So they're kind of the beliefs that we stubbornly hold on to, and I hope you have at least a few beliefs that you stubbornly hold on to despite pressures, whether persuading from without And sometimes that's what may challenge our beliefs is pressures from without to get us to compromise or to concede. Other times we find ourselves struggling with just our own temptations from within, desires or feelings or thoughts that we wrestle with. And sometimes those are the things that make us maybe want to make a concession regarding what we should not make a concession on if we held to our convictions. So the idea of convictions we're going to see is basically that state of being convinced within your heart and your mind regarding something that's right for you in your life. It's being strongly convinced about what is right for you as well as what is wrong for you. And then really exercising the courage to hold on to those things where you're firmly persuaded what's important or what matters most, and because you're firmly convinced about that, you have a conviction regarding that, you hold to that without deviating in your life. I think a great example of that, and it's the first verse we put there in your handout, is the life of Daniel himself. Daniel chapter 1, the backdrop of that story, remember Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Israel, and he had destroyed the temple, he had killed many people, and he took away prisoners back to the land of Babylon. And as he took away all these prisoners and captives back to Babylon, Daniel was brought back. It tells us that the king instructed Ashpenaz to bring some of the children of Israel, and particularly it says, young men in whom there was no blemish, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, those, the idea there is with great, we might say, potential, with great talent. And I do just want to draw your attention to that as a side note to take notice that the evil king in that day, who was he interested in? The young men. Very interesting. Many got put to death. Many were of no concern. But the evil king in the worldly empire, his deepest concern was taking back the young men and doing what he could to take the young men. And it describes particularly the young men who were possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had ability. The idea is he took the cream of the crop. He looked for young men with incredible potential, and he said, you know what? I need to turn them to be my servants. And nothing new under the sun, gentlemen. I tell you, the evil king of this day and age, the devil, is predominantly got his focal point, I believe, on the same thing on the young men of our generation, so basically he can pervert their minds and distort their perspectives and shape them into what he wants them to be rather than what God's intention is for them to become the type of man 
that God's heart is for them. And it tells us as he brought back these young men, it says that he might teach them the language and the literature of the Caledonians. Isn't that interesting? Take the young men and indoctrinate their minds with Babylonian ideas. Give them these Babylonian ideas by what you train them and, and teach them. And the king also appointed for them, it says, a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And for three years of training, so that the end of the time, he might serve before the king. So there's the backdrop of this situation. Here's Daniel. Here's his friends. Many of these young men brought back. And right there in your handout, I put Daniel 1, verse 8. It's a pivotal verse. It says, notice, in light of those things, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Let me say to you this morning, that's called conviction. Right there. That's called conviction. Pressure, temptation, opportunity, liberty. I mean, here's a teenage young man. His world's just fallen apart. He's potentially watched his own parents be put to death. He's taken to a foreign land hundreds of miles away. He's being indoctrinated with all these crazy ideas. Some believe in some ways perhaps castrated, made eunuchs. So all these horrific, difficult things have happened to this young man. He has no support system. He has no accountability. He does not have the word of God at his disposal. He does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him. He has no one to keep him accountable. And yet it tells us that when Daniel is exposed to this situation and this opportunity, you can drink all the wine that you want, son. Don't care what your age is, and it's totally free, and it's the best stuff. It's the king's wine and all of his delicacies. It tells us that Daniel, because he was a man of conviction, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's wine and all the delicacies that were set before him as a young man. Because to him, that would dishonor God because much of that wine and delicacies were first offered to idols and worship. And so in Daniel's heart and mind, in his conviction, that represented idolatry. It represented unfaithfulness to God. It represented in his life something that spoke of indulgence of carnal things and intoxication. And so because of that, Daniel in his mind would not compromise because to him, that was something he was convinced within would displease God. So he exercises conviction here and does not, in a sense, participate. And let me just say, that's coming from, think about it, a teenage young man. And that's why I love this story. That is coming from a teenage young man, no pressure from his parents. These are our convictions, son. Now, he may have developed his convictions from his parents, but now he's living out his convictions on his own because his parents aren't there putting the heavy hand on him to make those choices. He's making these decisions because he was a man of conviction, even as a teenage young man who had a strong sense of what was right in his life, what was wrong in his life. He has no accountability, no support system, yet he's strongly convinced in his own heart what's right and wrong. And so he stubbornly resolves what he will not do and what he will do. And this is a beautiful example. This is the idea here. And we want, again, to be developing convictions as men 
Because the idea when we develop convictions is we establish values or boundaries, if you would, for our own lives that we would operate in with, uh, within as men, and then we courageously hold to those boundaries. And this is why being a man of conviction is important, a man who has convictions and actually courageously, without compromising, holds to those convictions. You've got to determine where lines are out of respect for what you know is right for you as an individual. And so you establish some values in your life, spiritually and morally, and they become the foundation to who you are as a person. I think one of the best ways I could say this, I have it highlighted in my notes here, is holding to some non-negotiables in your life. Every guy should hold some non-negotiables in your life. There should be a few things that are just non-negotiables. And it doesn't matter who you're with or what you're feeling or how your life's going or what anyone else says, or really, for that matter, what anyone else does, that you just say, look, these are non-negotiables for me. That's just something I have a strong conviction about in my way of life, no matter what others are doing, those convictions then kind of limit us to a degree to keep us balanced and living within boundaries. It helps us to say a man of integrity. And convictions will then shape your behavior because they'll guide the way that you think about things. It'll help direct and determine your decisions and how you act. Convictions will motivate you to do certain things. They'll motivate you to have certain priorities in what matters and what doesn't, and they'll kind of begin to define who you are. And let me just say, too, a conviction is different than an opinion. An opinion, which we can all have opinions, an opinion is something that you and I will discuss or maybe even argue about. Quite honestly, if someone has a better argument, you may at some point be willing, if you have humility, even compromise what you stand on as far as your opinion and change your opinion about certain things. So convictions aren't necessarily opinions. Conviction is something that's kind of, that, again, that non-negotiable. It's that firm belief. It's that thing we might say, it's a hill that I'm going to die on. It's just something that you firmly believe is right and won't deviate on. Charles Stanley said this regarding convictions. It's being thoroughly convinced that something is so absolutely true and right that you take a stand for it regardless of the consequences it brings. I like that. Something that you are so firmly convinced is right or true that you will take a stand for it regardless of the risk, the loss, or the consequence that may come attached to that. And as men, we have to hold certain convictions. As men, I truly believe there are some hills that we should be willing to die on. And not just on a combat zone uh, out in some foreign country in conflict. There should be some moral and spiritual hills that we are willing to die on. And, and I say that for this reason, gentlemen, because if we don't stand for certain things, then we'll just eventually start to cave on everything. If we don't stand for certain things and have backbone regarding that, then we're going to just become someone who easily makes concessions on everything in our lives. You know, to me, one of the beautiful examples of a, of a man of conviction whom Jesus honors greatly in the New Testament is John the Baptist. And can I remind you this morning, John the Baptist never did one miracle. 
He was never used in some way where we see sort of supernatural power working through his life to do a healing or something like that. Some of the other uh, disciples of the Lord and Paul, I mean, they, they experienced miraculous power of God to heal, to cast out demons. But what did John the Baptist's life represent? He stood for righteousness. He stood for righteousness. And Jesus pays him a huge compliment. Think about that. The Lord Jesus himself, the greatest man, the perfect man. Jesus himself said of John the Baptist, I have it in your notes there, look at it. Jesus said this of John the Baptist, Matthew eleven eleven. He said, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Now think about what Jesus just said there. Among all those born of women, in other words, he's saying among all the men on the earth, Jesus said, there is none greater than John the Baptist. In essence, Jesus was proclaiming publicly, this is a great man. This is a great man. Never did a miracle, had a brief public ministry, but Jesus commends him outwardly as a truly great man. In fact, you might say one of the greatest men who ever lived. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to be a great man. I'd like to, to some degree, be someone who lives out my life in stewardship and my existence on this earth where my Lord would say to me, you're living like a good man. You're living like a great man. And interesting to take note of, Jesus points to this one who he says is a great man. And interestingly enough, he was the example of a man of what? Strong convictions. Because that's what defined John's life. The New Testament reveals to us that John was a man who had a very firm hold on his personal character and really his convictions, and he held to them deeply. John the Baptist, when you study his life in the New Testament, he was not a people pleaser whatsoever. I mean, starting with just the way the guy dressed and his diet. He went around in camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, he was like the captain caveman of the ancient culture. So John the Baptist was not a people pleaser. He wasn't trying to impress people, get acceptance, get likes. He always honored God at the centrality of who he was over everything else. His one concern in the way he lived was what does God think about me? What does God think about this? And John, if you look at his life, he was a deeply humble man in his attitude. Was he bold? Absolutely. But he also, as Abraham Lincoln once said, they said of Abraham Lincoln about him, actually, excuse me, they said that he was a man of velvet steel. I like that. He was a man of velvet steel. Abraham Lincoln wasn't this cold. He was a strong man like steel, but they said he was a man of velvet steel. Super strong, super firm, but at the same time, there was a softness, a tenderness, a caring and compassionate heart that he had simultaneously, much like our Lord, really. And John the Baptist was a very humble man in his attitude and actions, but simultaneously, he was a strong man in spirit. He was not a pushover nor a coward when it came to doing what was right. In fact, again, if you look in your notes there, the verse I put in, Matthew 11, there as they were departing, it tells us that Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. And here again is Jesus's commentary on this man, this man of convictions, John the Baptist. And look what he said about John. Jesus said of him, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? In other words, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. And what he's conveying is John the Baptist was not a man 
who was easily swayed, like a reed shaken and blown by the wind. And he said, that was not John. And you know that, Jesus was saying. He was not a man who was easily swayed. He kind of had that stubborn persistence in the idea of what was righteous and what was wrong. He says, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus says he was not a man who was swayed. And in a sense, Jesus conveys this idea as he's not a man who was soft. He was a strong man, Jesus said. Humble, yes, but yet a very strong man. And because of the strength of his convictions, it influenced his actions and his stand for righteousness. In Luke chapter 3, I put in your notes there, it tells us, John said to the multitudes as they came out to be baptized, brood of vipers. Boy, that would have been the end of his public ministry. Everybody would have left. What a great way. Good morning. Welcome, you snakes and serpents. Welcome to church this morning. I mean, can you imagine? They come out to listen to him. Brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So again, John just, he spoke with a degree of, look, I need to be honest. These were hard things that the culture needed to hear. They were holding on to religiosity rather than being right with God in a genuine way. And John was a man who stood for righteousness. In fact, Mark chapter 6, which I put into your handout there, shows another occasion of this man of, of deep convictions this story where Herod, when he was becoming concerned, it tells us that when Herod was hearing about Jesus, he thought of Jesus, oh my goodness, this is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And look, look at the verses there. It says, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. Now, he's raised from the dead. Now, the reason that that happened, the reason why John lost his head by Herod was Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, bound him in prison. Here's why, guys. Look. For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. In other words, he had stolen his brother's wife away, and in adultery, he stole his brother's wife away, and he married his brother's wife. But John had said to Herod, look what he said to him, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John the Baptist was a man who was so strong in spirit, he had such deep conviction about what was right and what was wrong according to the value system of the word of God that not only did he rebuke a fellow man and say, look, I don't care what you're saying or what the story or call it a love affair or you weren't, look, what you're doing is wrong. It is not right for you to be in that relationship with her. It's, it's inappropriate, it's sinful, it's wrong. And he wasn't afraid to say that not just to another man, but he's talking to a politician. I mean, he's talking to a very high-powered, highly influential man. Now, he lost his head in the process, no pun intended, literally. And so, again, this is the idea. If we're going to stand for what's right, we have to be willing to be open to the consequence that may be attached to that. And God help us that we would not make the mistake of thinking more about the consequence attached or the risk attached or the loss that could come or the difficulty we might face and therefore make concessions and compromises on our convictions 
because we're fearful of what may come to pass. But instead, whether it's something we hold to, something we stand for, something that we will speak of in truth that no one else will, that we would be willing to have enough conviction to do that in our lives. And sadly, the reason I bring that up, gentlemen, is because many men today, by way of my observation, and I don't know, you're free to have your own opinion, I see many men today, and it deeply concerns me that I feel like we're becoming very weak-willed. I feel like men are becoming very weak-willed and cowardly, listen, in regards to morality. Look, I know we have, you know, you know, guys that run around on football fields with helmets that could plow somebody over and take a hard hit and get back up and are, are tough in the sense of physicality or people who can enter into a ring or a cage and punch each other in the face and can take a strong, and, and, and I'm not diminishing that. But to me, that is vastly different than being someone who's tough out, vastly different than someone who has inward backbone. Someone who has the backbone to stand for what is right. Someone who has the courage to fight the battles within and hold the convictions. Because if you can run somebody over or take a beating or beat people up, but at the same time, you have no backbone to stand for what's right and to stand against what's wrong, is that really of much use? I think the deeper thing is to have men who are tough and strong and have some inward fortitude in their life regarding conviction about what is right and what is wrong, and they don't lack courage in that department. And that's where you won't punk them down. That's where they won't back down. That's where they won't punk out when it comes to, look, that is wrong, and so I'm not afraid to stand and say that's wrong, and, and, and you're not going to intimidate me on that where I believe this is right because I know this is what's right according to God's word, and I'm not intimidated to stand for that or to say something in regards to that. And I think this is very important and why it is a very important thing for us to become men of conviction. We need, gentlemen, more stable, inspired men of conviction who will uphold standards in society. Our world is craving for it, and it's essential to our society and to our families. And again, we see biblical examples of this illustrated in the Bible. Again, we drew your attention to Daniel chapter 1, of course, as he purposed in his heart. I think another great example of that, it's there in your handout, is in Daniel chapter 3, same book, where you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And who were they? The three friends of Daniel who went there like Daniel as a teenager, who watched their other teenager friend, their other schoolmate, say, I'm purposing in my heart to do the right thing. And I don't care if everybody else in this school system of Babylon here isn't going to do what's right. I'm going to hold to my convictions. And interesting, isn't it interesting as this young teenage man holds strong to conviction? What does he do? He influences his other three friends. Because you read the story in Daniel 1, they followed along with Daniel. They followed along because strong leadership breeds commitment. And when Daniel stood, they stood as well and, and decided to follow him in the same way. Again, we can lead in wrong paths and be a knucklehead, or we can also lead in good ways and draw people to say, you know what, hey, I'm going to stand for that too. I I'll stand for that too. I'm not afraid to stand for that. And now look what happens. Daniel chapter 3. Here's these three young men later on in life. They're told they have to bow down to worship the large golden image that was constructed, or else they would be punished, remember, and cast into the fiery furnace. And it tells us, read the story in Daniel chapter 3, when you have time, that these men stood their ground in conviction and they would not bow down. 
They didn't care about the consequence. They would not bow down because they held to their convictions. I think another great story of being a man of conviction is the life of Joseph in, Gen or in yeah, Genesis chapter 39, where Joseph, remember, had been taken down to Egypt as his brothers have sold him, and he goes down, he starts to work in Potiphar's house, and the Lord was with him. Again, young man, maybe 17, 18 years old, he's in a difficult place. He's been pulled away. He's gone through a lot of hardship in his life. He, could, he would have been the poster child for a victim. Poster child. For, I, I'm a victim. I'm sorry. I've been mistreated. I've been victimized and oppressed. He would have been the, the poster child for that. But instead, he's brought down to Egypt. He's working in Potiphar's house, and the Lord's prospering. It says the Lord was with him and made everything he did to prosper, so much so to where Potiphar didn't even keep track of anything because he trusted Joseph so implicitly that he was such a good worker and a hard steward. All, all Potiphar thought about was, hey, I, where am I going to get my next meal, and, and where am I going to sleep tonight? I mean, he just, his life was freed up because Potiphar saw that Joseph was such an excellent worker and such a good steward. But then it tells us that he left all that Joseph had in his hand. And the end of the first paragraph, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came to pass after these things, look what it says, that his master cast longing eyes, master's wife, excuse me, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said to him, lie with me. So here's this powerful, no doubt probably very attractive woman, attractive, powerful. She's the, uh, you know, kind of like a, a, a princess-like status, and she doesn't use subtlety. She literally comes to Joseph, and she says, do you want to have sex? I mean, no subtlety there. Go to bed with me. Now, you're a red-blooded, highly hormonal, this is all men here, right? 17 to 18-year-old young man, nobody's around to keep you accountable. Your life's already been miserable. It seems like everything is going wrong. You want to talk about a strong temptation, the attraction of the woman, your own biological hormones, the reality that nobody's ever going to know. Nobody's ever going to find out. And then on top of it, you know what? I'm entitled to just behave bad. I'm already a victim. I just, I'm I just, I deserve some bad behavior. And that's a victim mentality. That's a victim mentality. I deserve to behave badly because this happened to me or that went on in my life. And so I'm entitled to do whatever I want, no matter what's right or wrong. And here he is in this moment tempted, but look what it says. He refused said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what's with me in the house. He's committed all he has to my hand. There's no one greater in his house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, watch his language, because you are his wife. You're his wife. I can't do that. How then can I do this? Look, he has a right view on sin, great wickedness. That was his perspective on sin. There's a good way to have conviction. You gotta have a right perspective about sin. He calls sin a great wickedness and sin against God. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I care about what's right between me and God. I don't want to sin against God. So it was as she spoke to Joseph. Now notice, day by day, he did not heed her to lie with her or be with her. But it happened about that time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. None of the men of the house were inside. She caught him on a day when he was alone. And she caught him by his garment. Now, you know this is a, a, you know, a, a seducer here. She grabs him by his clothes, says to him, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he ran outside. 
Again, he had a right view on sin. He understood that he was accountable to his master. He realized the importance and value of marriage and what sexual propriety was about. And so because he held those strong convictions, not just once, but it says day after day. Imagine that. I mean, some people, you know, they have conviction for a moment, but what about when it's day after day? Wearing you down, same temptation, same pressure, same seduction, day after day after day. And it says that Joseph kept trying to avoid her, avoid her. Eventually, she abruptly grabs him, and he just literally, he just flees. He runs for his life. And you know what? That is the best tactic, gentlemen, to avoid falling into giving into temptation and entering into sin in any department of life. Just put as much mileage as possible between you and the opportunity to sin. That's the best way to do it. Because, you know, sometimes I, I say to people, look, if you don't go near the edge of the cliff, I 100% guarantee you'll never fall over it. It's not rocket science. I don't want to fall off the cliff again. Just don't go near the edge. If you just stay as far away from the edge possible, you cannot fall over the cliff. It, it's not going to happen. So Joseph here, he just runs for his life. And sometimes that is the most spiritual thing. Is something about to draw you in? Or are you struggling, making a concession, a compromise with your convictions in some department of your life? Just get really practical. Jesus said, if your eye offends, you just pluck out your eye. Your arm offends you. Cut it off. Now, I don't think he was saying literally chop off your arm and poke out your eye. Then you'll just be a one-eyed luster. Or you'll just be a one-armed thief. What Jesus was just saying is be radical, man. Just be practical. Don't hyper-spiritualize it. Just be radical and do what you have to do because you hold to strong conviction. Joseph is a great example of that. Job, of course, is a man of great conviction as well. It tells us there in our handout, the next section of verses, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd, Job did, to scrape himself, and he sat in the midst of ashes. So here's Job. He's suffering. He's in physical affliction. He's scraping literally these pus-filled boils, these painful blisters from head to toe. And again, keep in mind, this is also after Job has suffered tremendous loss. Not one loved one, all of his children died. He lost his business. I mean, everything possible is kind of all coming together at one time, just horrible, horrible experiences. Sometimes I feel like I'm having a bad day. I just read Job chapter one and two. And it just helps me go, yeah, it's, this is hard, but I don't know if it's at that intensity yet, Lord. And here Job's gone through all these things. Now his health is afflicted on top of that, and he's got no explanation. God's not whispering his ear, Job, just hang in there, buddy. Trust me, by chapter 42, everything's coming back, and it's going to be a great book in the Bible. You're going to be famous about suffering, and, and, and I'm just, this is just something between me and Satan. That's Job knows none of that. All he knows is he's been a blameless man, loving, serving, worshiping God, and he's going through all these horrific circumstances. And not because he did wrong things either. But he's going through all these hardships. And look, Satan does all these painful, miserable things to bring suffering into his life. And then it's at that moment, look, that his wife says to him, what a great helpmate, huh? Do you hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. It is interesting. God took away or Satan took away this and that and this and that. And Satan left his wife. I don't know. You can interpret that however you want, but look what she look. I mean, look at the temptation there, and perhaps it's because Satan knew that rather than his wife be supportive and helpful, that instead she was going to be one of the greatest antagonists 
to bring further pain and suffering. And again, you want to get to a man's heart? You want to really wound a man? You know, I know with my wife behind me, I feel like I can leap over skyscrapers. But if I feel like my wife's not with me or behind me or supportive, by the same token, that can totally deflate me as a man. And so she says, why, are, why don't you just curse God and die? Why suffer like that? Why continue to live in pain and hardship? Just curse God and he'll just take your life early and, and you'll die. And look what Job says, because he was a man of conviction. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, Job was a man of deep conviction. And so because of that, he stood in opposition to what his wife was saying. He says, look, should we enjoy all the good blessings God's brought into our life and then think that somehow that if he allows adversity into our life, that we should throw a temper tantrum as a human being and that we should be angry at God or curse God because he allowed hardship or difficulty in a sinful fallen world, which happens to every single human being breathing on the planet to some degree at different times. And so he stands, again, because he was a man of conviction and in a very hard hour as well. And then, of course, that great statement in Joshua where Joshua in chapter 24 was watching different people doing different things with their own family lives. And, and he was saying, look, you got to make a choice. What are you going to do with your family? Are you going to lead your family to worship and serve the Lord? Or are you going to live like the pagans in the land? And Joshua there says, you know, ch you know, choose this day whom you will serve. But then what does he make that strong, strong statement? But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And I love that. That strong conviction in his heart. Look, I don't care what that family's doing. Well, I just, I'm you know, raising three daughters. They're adults now. And, but, you know, I, I would hear that. Oh, but this family in the church, this kid at the Christian school, their parents let them. And my answer to that was, I don't care what that family does. Love them. They're a sweet family. They may even love the Lord. But I'm telling you, for me and my household, we're not serving and doing what we do according to the standard of what this family does or what that friend group does or what these parents. I'm answering to the Lord. And as for me and my household, this is what we're going to. Well, they don't do this. Or they, don't, they don't have to go to church that many times a week. I, look, I was going to the church this many times a week before I was standing before a podium. Get over it. This is what we do as a family. This is who we are. We worship the Lord. We serve the Lord. And again, this beautiful man with strong conviction, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, what's the benefit and the value of this whole concept and topic of conviction? I mean, what are some of the benefits? Why bother being a man of conviction? Why? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, I think that we need more people, gentlemen, in this world, particularly men who know what they believe. And, and because they know what they believe, they can't be persuaded otherwise. And let me just say in connection to that too as a side note, if our convictions prove wrong on matters, and sometimes mine have over the years, if our convictions prove wrong on matters, we also need the humility to change at times. If maybe we're holding to a strong conviction and perhaps God wants us to maybe be a little bit more flexible or gracious or find balance, but that being said, it's still much better to be, I would say, a man of conviction than be classified as a man of conformity. If you have to pick, <laughs> I would recommend be a man of conviction, not a man of conformity all the time. 
Know what you believe and stand for what you believe. And those who have convictions live stable and consistent lives. And again, such men who have convictions bring stability in their environment, in their marriages, in their families, in the church, in the society, in their job. You know, they know how to live within boundaries. And we need, in an unstable world, some more stability. And this is what having convictions does. It will make you be a more stable man rather than fluctuating all the time. Because those who lack conviction, they just tend to be people who can't keep their footing. And I'll tell you, watch and take note. When someone does not live with convictions, they tend to be individuals who never get any traction in life. They never tend to be, indivi- they tend to be individuals who, who kind of tend to be more unreliable and they struggle with getting traction and making progress because they're always being pushed over here and persuaded over here and, and, and they kind of become unstable souls, which James warns out is not a good thing. In fact, in Proverbs, I put it in your notes there, Proverbs 10.9 alludes to this. It says, people with integrity walk safely. The idea is they walk securely. They have stable lives, but those who follow crooked paths will slip and fall. And let me just say, I think that when we choose to have conviction as men, to some degree, I understand people may not like or appreciate maybe if a man seems to be someone who has a little bit of a stubborn spirit. But I'll also tell you this, though people may not like a stubborn spirit at times, people also can't help but to be inspired by a man of conviction. You may be a little bit misjudged at times, but people want to follow, I'm convinced anyway, they want to follow someone who knows what they believe and will hold their ground on issues. Someone who is firmly convinced about right and wrong, and let me just say, as leaders, and we'll talk about leadership at one point in our sessions, good leaders can be flexible, and they should be. They shouldn't be arrogant, hard-headed. Good leaders can be flexible, but they don't fluctuate on the important things. They don't fluctuate on things that really matter, the main issues. They live with conviction, they lead with conviction, and they have that strong sense of what's right and correct, and they hold to that. Winston Churchill said this, and I quote, and many of you know what a great leader he was in his time, a very strong leader. Winston Churchill said this, one man with conviction will overthrow a hundred who have only opinions. That's good. One man with conviction will overthrow a hundred who have only opinions. The idea is they're fluctuating. And as default, by, by God's design, we're destined to be leaders. And so therefore, it's important as leaders that we answer that call by having some healthy convictions. Now, let me ask this question this morning. Where is the best place to develop some convictions? And my simple, quick answer to that would be the word of God. That's where we should develop our convictions from, the truths, the values, the principles of God's word, because God's word is God's value system. It's God's book of convictions, if you would, and nothing better that I can do as a man than to align my values with God's values. So that's a good starting ground to develop convictions from. It is good to have a strong conviction, may I say, about, and I'm going to emphasize this word, the authority of Scripture. A strong conviction about the authority of Scripture, what the Spirit-inspired, authoritative, infallible Word of God says 
on matters and deciding that the authority of the scripture will always rule over my thinking, my perspectives on matters, my decisions, my value system, my actions. One of the best questions you can ask in navigating your life, Galatians 4.30, I put it in your notes there. Boy, these six words can be life-altering if you live by them. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? I like that. To some degree, I try and live up my life by that. When things are going on, my personal life, I'm trying to handle a matter, make a decision, dealing with my own thoughts or feelings on something, working through something on a family matter, dealing with something with you know, ministry or whatever. I, I try and always default back. Though. Okay, 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 I heard all that. But nevertheless, what does the scripture say? That's what we're going to go by. That's what I want to go in that. If, but I, uh, yes, I want to strangle them all. But God says, be angry, Tony, but sin not. You can be angry, but you can't act upon that anger in the way. Again, what does the scripture say? And letting the scripture govern you as a man, letting it regulate your actions, your decisions, your desires, even if there's that struggle, nevertheless, always ask, what does the scripture say? Martin Luther, when he was standing before an intimidating group of rulers, remember, who wanted him to capitulate in regards to his belief in the word of God, he said this, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. My conscience is held captive. And again, where do convictions come from? Our conscience, that internal moral judge within us that helps us determine what's right and wrong. I would encourage you this morning, learn, gentlemen, to listen to your conscience. God's hardwired it into you. It's often where the Spirit of God speaks to us. And if you have a reservation in your conscience about something, pay attention to that. Don't trespass your conscience. Keep your conscience tender. Don't harden it. 1 Timothy 1 describes having a pure heart and a good conscience. And the best way to develop how to live out convictions, how do we live them out? The Word of God helps us develop convictions, but how do I live out my convictions? And I would say the way that we live out our conviction is not by human strength, but is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, isn't it interesting? What is he referred to as the, don't miss the first word, the Holy Spirit? So what's one of the things the Spirit of God seeks to do in our lives? To help bring holiness, wholeness, healthiness. So the way we live out our convictions is not through human effort, but it's the Holy Spirit empowering us to live out those things. I think you find a case study of that with Peter and the disciples in Matthew chapter 26. Remember, in Matthew 26, Peter is so confident in his humanity, and he was kind of a rough and tumble fisherman, right? And he said, when he heard that you know, the disciples were going to stumble and fall, and he said, Lord, I mean, even if everyone denies you, you forget where I come from? I'm Peter the fisherman. There's an, I will die with you if that's what it takes to stay committed to you. And then what happens? Jesus cautions them, and Peter, who was so determined, thought he was so committed that he would die for Jesus and not deny him. In the next section, we see him caving when a little girl says to him, do you know Jesus? And he can't even stand before a little girl. And he completely lacks courage and becomes cowardly. But then later on in the book of Acts, this same Peter who cowardly 
made a concession and compromised in front of a little girl, that same Peter later on in the book of Acts, the dude is bold as a lion. My question, what happened? The power of the Holy Spirit came strongly upon its influence in, in Peter's life. And the Holy Spirit, as he filled Peter and worked through Peter, began to empower Peter and made Peter this bold man. The same with all the disciples. They went from hiding in fear to being fearless, bold servants. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's in your notes there. Jesus said to them, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word power is literally dunamis, a dynamic. It's where we get our English word dynamite, an explosive, strong power when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life. Oh, I'm not a very courageous dude. I just, you don't have to be. Lord, would you baptize me with the power of your spirit so that I would have an inward boldness to be a man of conviction and to live out my convictions by the supernatural empowering of the spirit. Acts chapter four, you see the same thing. They prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, if I can, let me just give a few suggestions about some things, just my own personal thoughts, that I think are some good things to have convictions about. What are some good things, just a few of them, to have good, strong convictions about? Let me say one I think is this, guys, honesty. Honesty. Have a strong conviction about honesty. May it be non-negotiable in our lives as men to say, look, it's non-negotiable. I will not lie. I just won't. I'm not going to cut a corner. I'm not going to fudge something. I'm not going to kind of manipulate something. And just non-negotiable. Honest, truthful, always transparent all the time. You hold a strong conviction about honesty, gentlemen, it will spare you so many headaches in life. Just make it a non-negotiable. Honesty is non-negotiable in every arena of life. Sexual purity non-negotiable. If I'm unmarried, I'm going to maintain my moral purity no matter what it takes. I got a strong conviction about that because not just does it not displease, does it displease God, it's destructive sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6 says that. It's the one sin where we destroy ourselves when we compromise in that area. And if you're married, you maintain your integrity of sexual purity by only expressing those sexual desires with your wife. Another area to maintain I think strong conviction about is just being someone who do, does what pleases the Lord, and that's a strong conviction in your life. I'm not going to be a man pleaser. I'm always going to ask, Lord, what is your will? What pleases you? And the Bible says that he, the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts the Lord is safe. Have a strong conviction, non-negotiable. I always am going to find out what pleases the Lord and default to that above all else. I'll tell you an area I think having a good non-negotiable conviction about is this, spending time with the Lord. That is, you prioritize with strong conviction your Bible time, your prayer time, just sitting alone with the Lord. That it's a non-negotiable for you. Other things can come, go, too busy for this, but a non-negotiable. At some point in my day, whether I get up and have my coffee in the morning or at my lunch break or before I go to bed at night or whatever, I'm going to get away from other human beings. I'm going to get away from devices. And I, as a non-negotiable, I've got to spend time with God or I'm going to be a knucklehead. And I am going to default back to my flesh if I'm not holding a strong conviction. I've got to spend time alone with God. Got to be in his word. Got to pray. Non-negotiable. I, I, it's not a non... Well, I just... I just I, 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 church. 
and I don't care whether you come here or not, some of you don't, but find somewhere and plant your buttocks, gentlemen, in a church and continue to warm the chair. Week after week, month after month, I'm telling you, non-negotiable, it will make a huge difference in your life as a man. The Christian support system, the accountability, the continuous ministry of the Holy Spirit, oh, this, that, find a way. Find a way somehow. There are plenty of opportunities. Well, I can't go on a, on a Sunday. Go on a Wednesday. I can't go. Find a Saturday night service. I don't know. Non-negotiable. Good for us. Very crucial to our spiritual life. How we manage our money. Who we'll partner with. Again, the non-negotiable. My family is first. Strong conviction there. Good thing to have a strong. Hey, my family is always going to be my first priority. Not career, not this or that or whatever. These are things that are very, very helpful. I put into your notes there what I, to me, are two key life verses. Proverbs 4.23 and Matthew 6.33. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, you can find your own life verses. I'm just sharing mine there because I'm on the other side of the podium. <laughs> but to me, these are two life verses. They're embedded in my internal DNA. And I try and live by these as a conviction in my life. Those two verses have shaped and developed who I am and what I've sought to to become and how I try and live out my life. Prioritizing, seeking first the kingdom and trusting God to just take care and add into my life everything else and keeping my heart right before God. And I'll tell you, characteristics of men living by conviction are beautiful because they're men who aren't apathetic. Men with conviction will be bold. They'll act in accordance with what's right. They won't waver. They won't easily compromise. Men with conviction aren't necessarily arrogant that's not the idea, but they're men who are confident and firm in their belief on a matter, and they're courageous. They got inner fortitude. They got backbone. And again, as I said before, this is something that's just really important. They live with a sense of purpose. This is why that characteristic of being a man of conviction is beautiful. And let me just say, too, there's a difference between biblical convictions and just holding convictions that are personal convictions where we need to allow some flexibility and latitude and grace among different people. There's a big difference, you know, biblical conviction and a conviction in certain departments where there's plenty of opportunity for flexibility. Again, I don't want to be, I know myself anyway, I don't want to be a stubborn, legalistic mule in non-essential things. I don't want to become like that. However, I do want to be a man who has a backbone. And I hope that you want to be a man who has a backbone within, who holds some non-negotiables in a healthy way, because if that defines our life as men, I believe we will honor God and will be good, strong, stable men in our families, in our churches, in our societies. Amen?